Can you believe how fast December is already flying by? No, because I still can't believe it's actually December. I mean, same. I <laughs> am so not ready for 2019. 2019. I know. That... It's a scary sounding year. Just because it sounds so much further than I imagined time going. I know that sounds real stupid, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's one of those years that sounds like Fake. so future that it's made up. Well, the fact that in, what, Back to the Future 3, they were in 2015, and it was like, whoa, and I'm like, yeah, that was four years ago. Yeah. And I <laughs> well, I always think, when people say years like, well, in 2031, I'm like, that isn't, that's not real. Like, that's Jetsons, that's the future. 2019 feels like that. I'm like, no. Ew, what? It does. Yeah, we still don't have flying cars. I mean, I, that's true, but... We also have the entire internet in our pockets and on our wrists. That's so. true, as I look at my smartwatch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, to check the time. Also, let's be real. Do we want a flying car? We have planes. We can't afford them. Like, let's be if, we if, want, I want affordable flying cars. Well, uh, <laughs> what What if we could put it on autopilot when we drive a long distance? They have that. It's called the Tesla. Well, well, hello everyone. Yes, hello. This is Brittany. I'm Tyler. And this is Blood and Wine. Blood and Wine, episode 31? 32. 32. Mm, I'm not... Off, you're a week behind. Sorry. (laughs) Mappy. Yeah, this is episode 32, and we're getting close to the end of the year. Wrapping up our first year of Blood and Wine. Although it's not a full 12 months, but still. Yeah, and... God, yeah, the next week uh, from when y'all are listening to this will be Christmas. Or I guess from yeah. when this is out. Y'all when might be listening is... to this after Christmas. Who knows? It's true. But I think it's always... I didn't realize it until I think a year or two ago that there's always one week left in the year from Christmas. Like, yeah. New Year's always exactly one week after because... Yeah, I mean, 25 to 31, it's, it's always a week. No, I know, but it... <laughs> It's just weird that you're like, Christmas, one week left in the year. Get get ready. I know. Which, this year, the way it's falling on the calendar is weird with work, just all the yeah, things. Cause you like... I hate it when Christmas is like in the middle of the week. Mm-hmm. Like, I want it to be, I don't know, like a Thursday. Okay. So you get off Wednesday, Thursday. You only have to take off Friday if you don't automatically get it off on the 26th. Yeah. And so you have a full weekend from the 24th to the next Sunday. I mean, th- okay, that's fair. I well, because generally places, I mean, and not everywhere. I think there are places that just give off the twenty fifth, but a lot of places will either give you the day before or the day after. Yeah. So yeah. this is why I think Christmas on a Thursday is ideal. Anyway, I think you know we're on the subject of Christmas, and I think in the spirit of I don't know gift giving and stuff, it's a stretch, but we're gonna go with it. I want to talk about some of the exciting stuff that we have planned. Yes, and this is all because of our Patreon subscribers. Yeah. Um, You guys have literally helped us in ways that you cannot even imagine. Mm -hmm. We've been able to do so much more because of y'all's support. And now we are looking into um, what our next equipment is to buy. Like, we're Mm -hmm. actually able to select these things now. Mm -hmm. We're going to get some microphones, some new mics. And so going to really solidify the sound, um, amplify that, and make it sound even better. We're looking at, in down the road, getting uh, some new computers so we can have just better recording equipment, uh, better editing going forward. 
and all of that is thanks to y'all. Like, yes. oh my gosh. Yes. And also, we are getting a lot better about having more special content on our Patreon page. Yes. We've started doing a little bit, we'll call it our video series. I don't know. Yeah, they're little, I mean, they're little, like, vlogs, they're I guess. They're little vlogs. They're special Vlog announcements. announcements. So it's like instead of doing a post of some news like we did for the first investigation discovery, yeah. we're doing videos and mm-hmm. we can let you guys know. And I think that is actually a perfect segue into what makes this episode special. Absolutely. So for this episode is actually our second partnership with Investigation Discovery. Yes, it is. And y'all, we are about to dive headfirst into an interview with the head of the cold case unit in the Cook County Police Department. Detective Sergeant Jason Moran. Yes, and this is for a new three-part special called Deadly Legacy, mm-hmm. and it is about John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy himself. Which Tyler just covered in episode 28. Yeah. So that one is very fresh, but this yeah. aired, the first episode premiered on Sunday, December 9th. The second was on the 16th, and the third one is coming up this next Sunday on the 23rd. Yes. So, so if, be sure, if you haven't caught the first two, we've we've tweeted about it and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but they have it on the IDGO app. Yeah. So if you have a smart TV or your phone, your tablet, or even yeah. on their website, you can watch mm-hmm. those episodes. Yes. And they are amazing. Um, amazing, heartbreaking. Yeah, the first part... Definitely made me cry. Yeah. Um, because the focus of this series is identifying the... There are eight victims of John Wayne Gacy of his 33 that were never identified in the 70s mm-hmm. when he was captured. And so um, Detective Moran is going back with his unit to try to identify these eight victims. And so this case is raw and real and heartbreaking mm-hmm. and just insanely heinous. Um, yeah. So we are... Really excited to be able to bring you guys this um, this interview. Absolutely. And we're going to dive into more detail and give y'all more background on the show and kind of what it hits on prior to our interview. But first, I think we should get into this wine. Yes. So the wine that I picked for this week, it's the Bees Knees Chenin Blanc Viognier from mm. 2017. It's from Western Cape, South Africa. Ooh, we've never done a South African wine before. No, we haven't. And I have actually never seen the combination of the Chenin Blanc and Viognier grapes. Yeah, I'm interested to see what this is going to be like. Yeah, so a little bit of a background before I get into the wine and its flavor notes. But South Africa is an area that is really coming up in the world as far as vineyards are concerned. And the wines there are very stunning, um, and the vineyards are also very beautiful in that part, in that region of the world. Just, I, oh, I mean, I would love South to Africa's go to South Africa. Same. Yeah. So. So expensive. There is a is. direct flight, a Delta flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg, South Africa. For it's, what, 2000? I, it, I'm sure something like that, but it's like a 16 hour flight. It's some insane amount. Yeah. And I kind of want to take it. Oh, I would love to. I actually didn't know there was a direct flight because I mm-hmm. didn't know a plane could have that much fuel. 
Yeah. Actually, I think the new planes, like the A340 extended range or the, the 787 extended range, I think they can fly almost from, like, I think Sydney, Australia to London you is, like, one of the longest. Of such random information. I love it so much. Well, you know. <laughs> um, so the estate where this wine is from is called Journey's End. And it was founded in 1996, and it's a small, quality-driven operation. And it's been one of the wineries that's putting South Africa on the wine map for having Ooh. some fine wines. And they... Some fine wines. No, these are like some fine wines. Fine. <laughs> um, so they this area has received acclaim from top shows like the International Wine Challenge and the Decanter World Wine Awards which I haven't what? heard of either of those. But, I mean, hey, they sound yeah. like shows that would be really interesting, actually. I mean, Learning about wine around the Netflix? world. Because, okay. I don't know, but I am wanting to know when Oh, it's probably like other kind of out. shows, like exhibitions. Maybe. I don't know. I don't or it know. could be show shows. I don't know. It's actually a musical. It's a musical about yeah. wine and decanters. Yeah, it's and um, off-Broadway. It's, it, it's very off-Broadway. Very off-Broadway. It's in the Bronx. <laughs> Well, this wine is, like I said, it's a combination of Chenin Blanc and Viognier. It's 80% Chenin Blanc and 20% Viognier. And it has a super ripe fruit character. You can see on the label, it's kind of whimsical with these bees. Mm -hmm. um, And it's probably absolutely going to be the bee's knees. At least it better be because of the name. I mean, yes, but the fact that you just made that pun, I'm considering leaving right now. But you're not going to because oh, okay. I know you want to hear about the aromas and the taste of this wine. I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it has ripe, fresh tangerine, apricot, Ooh. pear, and citrus with notes of orange blossom. So there's going to be a little bit of floral okay. on the tongue. Or oh, no, that was aroma. It will have a floral aroma, and then on the tongue, there will be um, bright orchard fruit and zesty citrus with notes of fresh cut grass and spice. Honestly, it sounds like a Sauvignon Blanc. It does. It does sound a lot like a Sauvignon Blanc. It's really good with spicy Asian food, just like Ooh. a Sauvignon Blanc is. Mm. <laughs> I know, right? I can right? have some pad thai right now. Um, also really good with cheeses, and it's a medium-bodied wine. I, I mean, have you ever found anything that wouldn't be good with cheese? Like, No, literally, I would... I drink water with cheese. Um, it's 13% alcohol by volume. And when you look at the label, you can see it's got this guy who's like a beekeeper. Oh. And he's getting wine out of a barrel and all the bees are flying out of it. It's just really cute. Like I said, very whimsical. Um, I, it's interesting that... Because I, I feel like that would be the perfect image if it was like a mead. You know, like the honey wine. That, yeah. So. Well, and it is also a, a screw top. So I'm going to open Ooh. it up. Got it. Yay. So sometimes those are hard. Okay. Ooh, it's very light. It is really light. I wonder if it's the bee's knees, if it's called that because of like the honey color. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> All right, here's your glass. Okay. Wow. It smells good. Oh, I wonder if it's going to be sweet. I don't know. Well, let's try it. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. That is sweeter than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like stop. I do taste the honey. Yeah. It didn't say honey, but I feel like I mean, it, if the, it has I feel sweetness. Like, I feel like if the label was a picture of like a rodent or something, you wouldn't think honey, though. I don't know why there'd be like a rat on the, this <laughs> rat wine. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this 
It's definitely sweeter than what we're used to. Mm -hmm. I like it, though. I think it's nice and refreshing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's December, so not necessarily the time you'd be thinking about a refreshing wine. You know, I don't know. Stuff like this. I agree that white wines are best in the summer, but I also... I'll have good wine whenever. It's kind of uh, like the whole true. saying that Mama has always said to us that, like, the best wine to pair with the food is the wine you want. Yes, and not necessarily pairing your wine with your food because it's perfect. Although I will say, sometimes it is nice to pair your wine with your food. Like, for example, I mean, yeah. if I was eating spicy Asian food, I don't necessarily want a, like a, a cab. cab. <laughs> yeah, I don't want a cab. Something I mean, like this fair. would be great because this nice, um, the sweetness would cut down on that. Yeah. Spicy. Oh. I'm not really getting the grass. No, I'm getting the fruity and the fresh, but I'm not getting that like floral, grassy. No. I and I would know. I just finished a juice cleanse, and so I basically know. was drinking grass for three days. That is basically true. So. Well, now that we've got our wine, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Deadly Legacy and yeah. uh, before we hop into this interview with Detective Moran? All right. Let's hop into Deadly Legacy. Chicago and the world watched an excavation of a house of horrors. A nightmare from long ago. 33 young men sexually assaulted and murdered. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy. John Gacy, a man who liked to put on a clown suit, is charged with murder. Went to death row with a dark secret. Get camera out of here. Eight unidentified victims. Now America's killer clown is back in the headlines. These are eight forgotten people that were murdered by one of the most evil persons ever to walk the earth. Sergeant Moran, County Police. Reopening the case was overwhelming. Within a day, there was 100 families looking for their missing loved ones. Oh my goodness. In a three-part special event, Gacy's unspeakable crimes will no longer stay buried. These boys were tortured, raped, and asphyxiated. And a new investigation has the power to bring closure to the loved ones left behind. Did this monster grab my brother? He walked out of this door. Nobody ever saw him again. I, I have a commitment to these victims. To me, these people are not forgotten. Okay, so that intro is so eerie uh, and yeah. so, oh my gosh, I, know. I, I have no words. I know this is a podcast, so you're listening, not watching, but at the very end, it flashes like the word Gacy, and then it like flickers and turns into Deadly Legacy, and it is chilling. It's chilling, and it's, oh, it says so much. Mm-hmm. ID, I want y'all to know whoever designed that, yeah. the creative who created that, it's phenomenal. It says so much, like, seriously. So, um, Tyler, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what exactly, I mean, it, that was a broad overview, but um, yeah, yeah, give us a little bit more info. So 40 years ago this December, 
police descended the steps into the home of Chicago resident John Wayne Gacy and came across a horrific scene. The depraved serial killer hunted in the streets of Chicago in the 1970s, luring 33 young men to a violent death and burying their bodies in his crawlspace. Mm. While many have considered John Wayne Gacy's terrifying reign of terror closed, the case was re-energized in 2011 when the Cook County Police Department decided to reopen the case. In the 40 years that have passed since Gacy's arrest, the Cook County Police Department has been working to identify the last victims of the killer clown. As each year passes without identification, family members that could provide crucial DNA to help solve the case are growing older, and the chances of a solution grow slimmer. Each episode of Deadly Legacy follows Cook County Detective Sergeant Jason Moran through his investigation as he receives thousands of tips, scours through evidence, and narrows in on three missing persons, interviewing their families, friends, and original investigators, ultimately solving each case. So, there is the high-level background on what Deadly Legacy goes into, what it covers, and if you... what Detective Moran was doing and yeah yeah reopening this if you want more of a deep dive into john wayne gacy himself i absolutely urge you to go back and listen to episode 28 yes um it was uh the case i did it was very long and it's a long very case. detailed and and very horrifying yes so if you um like having nightmares listen to that episode because we also talk about Bundy. Yeah, so, it's a, it's just a scary episode. It's a scary episode. Let's and just say editing that one wasn't fun. And it took a long time. was, yeah, hard. So, all right. Well, with that, we'll hop into our interview now with Detective Jason Moran. This is Jason. Hello. Hello. Yes, Um, I'm Brittany. Oh, I'm Tyler. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you guys, I should say. Yes, yeah. yeah, nice to talk to you as well. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening to chat with us and be on our podcast. Yes, thank you so much. No, not at all. I'm happy to do it. Well, to start out, um, do you mind just giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to who you are, um, what your role is as the head of the cold case unit there in Cook County, as well as what your role's been on the John Wayne Gacy unidentified victim cases? Um, well, sure. My name is uh, Jason Moran. I'm a detective sergeant with the Cook County Sheriff's Police here in Chicago. I mm-hmm. lead the Forensic Services Initiative, which is basically a cold case unit. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, old murder cases, old missing person cases, human identification, mm-hmm. which means uh, fleshed bodies, markedly decomposed, skeletal remains, body parts, um, complex deaths. There's something else that falls underneath my... Oh, wow. Unit. Um, I've been with the sheriff's office for 20 years. Um, and one of my cases, not the only one, is uh, the sheriff and I, Sheriff Tom Dart, mm-hmm. um, the sheriff of Cook County, decided to reopen the uh, John Wayne Gacy serial killings case mm-hmm. uh, to identify his unidentified victims. Okay. Right. And uh, I've... Uh, you know, basically been a one-man band uh, in the, you know, in trying to identify these unidentified victims and bring, you know, any other part of the case to a contemporary status. But uh, mm-hmm. 
Right. And these were reopened, was it in 2011 when y'all reopened those? Uh, yes, I think that's when I did the original exhumations. Okay. Um, I started, we, you know, we had to start off with uh, obtaining a biological, uh, biological sample from each of the unidentified victims in order to um, mm -hmm. use DNA to identify them. So I did a series of exhumations in 2011, which, which started it off. Right. And I, what re-energized or what what was the catalyst in 2011 that made y'all decide that that was when you should reopen to try to identify these unidentified victims well what had happened was um we had i was assigned uh a cold case uh, by the time by by my sergeant it was a scattered skeletal human remains case in one of our forest preserves so mm -hmm. Back many years ago, a skeleton was located. Um, the original investigators were not able to learn who the decedent was. So my sergeant and I said, let's let's use this newfangled DNA thing. Because mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> while, while DNA was becoming a thing, for purposes of human identification, we hadn't used it yet. So oh. I went down to the medical oh. examiner's office, sent in, a obtained a bone from the decedent, sent it into the lab for DNA testing. Mm -hmm. And through that process, we were able to learn uh, who the decedent was. Mm -hmm. um, and then the process began to learn, you know, what was his fate, how he ended up being out in the woods, in right. which I was able to follow the case backwards then and learn why he was there and what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, but either way, that was our first human ID case using DNA for my department right and when i presented the case to the sheriff he he asked me well how many other unidentified human remains cases do we have oh, wow. in the cold case mm -hmm. uh, and i didn't know i didn't know off the top of my head so he says we'll find out and see if we could use dna to bring those cases to closure mm -hmm. yeah so i i was down in the uh, cold case room, and I came across a file cabinet that said Gacy 1978. Oh, my gosh. And now I grew grew up in Chicago, you yeah. know, on the south side of the city. And uh, uh, so I obviously, you know, I was only a boy during the original murder investigation, but mm -hmm. it was a case that everybody knew of, especially here. Right. You know, uh, especially, especially being a boy, you know, growing up uh, yeah, in absolutely. Chicago. So out of curiosity, I opened up the cabinet just to kind of, uh, you know, uh, learn, you know, the real facts and circumstances of the case mm -hmm. um, while, while I was looking for, for other items in the cold case. Room. And, and I learned that eight of the unidentified, eight of Gacy's victims were never identified. Right. They yeah. were, they were just skeletons coming out of his, you know, markedly decomposed bodies and skeletons coming out of his crawl space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite my departments and the medical examiner's office best efforts, eight of the 33 victims were never identified. Wow. So, and I, you know, I just, I wasn't aware of that. I thought the case was clear and closed. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So I brought it to the sheriff and I said, listen, there's eight unidentified victims in, in this one, one case. And, um, so we kind of looked at each other and, you know, we kind of talked about, should we try, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, should we try to identify these eight unidentified victims? And we talked about it for a few days, you know, on and off. 
you know, about the pros, the cons, is it possible? Who's going to hear our message? Uh, you know, some uh, technical things too, some investigative items. And mm-hmm. we just thought to ourselves that there was, you know, there, there's tragic stories all over the country. Right. You know, yeah. uh, death and destruction and it, it, it you know, so there's, there's tra- we, we constantly hear about these tragic stories. We've heard of, you know, for many, many years, I've dealt with many in my career, but we thought to ourselves, what, what unidentified homicide victim more deserves, you know, what unidentified homicide victim deserves more of a chance or a second chance at identification than these victims? Right. Yeah, Agreed. absolutely. So. You know, I mean, these, what, what Gacy did to his victims uh, you know, these were, this was a, a, a sexually motivated crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he would uh, rape his victims. He would incapacitate them using handcuffs or chemicals. Um, uh, and then he would asphyxiate them. He'd strangle them either manually or through ligature. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then, Dad, you know, if, if you could add insult to such a heinous crime, he, he then retained the corpses in his own home by burying him in the crawl space or the last four to five victims, they went into a body of water, the Desplaines river, mm-hmm. uh, and deprived the, the, the victim's families mm-hmm. from knowing what happened to them, you know, and, and, you know, was uh, obviously very undignified for any deceased person to be left in that scenario. So <clears throat> we just, we just said, you know, we don't know, uh, another victim, homicide, unidentified homicide victim that really deserves a second chance, you know, more deserves a, a second chance at identification than these kids. And, right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why we did it. Well, and yeah, what Gacy did was just so unimaginable. And, yeah. you know, we've read about the case and I've heard about it, but not, not until a couple of years ago did I realize there were eight victims that mm-hmm. were unidentified. Um, and, and on that, you know, before DNA was something that we could use to identify human remains, what types of, what were they using back in the late 70s to identify the other victims? Well, human identification back then was primarily done through dental records, a, a, a dental comparison. So you take anti-mortem um, x-rays and charts, so that's before death, and you compare them, compare them to post-mortem. Uh, x-rays and charts mm-hmm. uh, and that was the main way they would identify unidentified deceased at the time now there was a couple other you know way you could use some forensic radiology you know looking at the usual breaks and bones or prosthetics mm-hmm. or yeah. uh, surgical screws or things like that but primarily they were using forensic dentistry yeah um, you know, of course dna was not around back then mm-hmm. of course with this being you know, an older cold case, you know, Gacy was already convicted, already executed. Is this something that is a part of your daily caseload or do you have to work on identifying these victims uh, in your own time? Well, it, you know, unfortunately it, it, it has been just one of my assigned cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just, Obviously, you know, the rapes, robberies, and murders of today take precedence over a lot of these cold cases. Right. Yeah. It's, unfo- it's unfortunate. I don't agree with it mm-hmm. uh, necessarily, mm-hmm. but 
you know, the things that are going on right now, temporary, those are the things that take the precedent. But we also have so many cold cases in this country. You know, old missing person cases and uh, old murder cases. And so I have a lot of those. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, that that's why, you know, what are we, six years, seven years in? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm still following up on leads from missing persons from all over the country. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just because I, ha- you know, I, we don't have the manpower to dedicate a team to this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, since we reopened the case, I received about 185 leads. Oh, wow. Well, and each one is a cold case in itself. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's, it doesn't move fast. Uh, you know, there's, it, there's a lot of issues with, uh, you know, people, it, it's not just local. I'm dealing with families all over the country. Mm-hmm. So it's been, uh, it's been overwhelming to say the least. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, with all of these leads that were coming in, how did you determine what ones were worth following up on and what ones were maybe maybe ones that you'd hold on until later or that weren't weren't worth following up on? Well, some of the leads I was able to kind of exclude right away, mm-hmm. you know. And you'll see, you may know already, you know, that family members of long-term missing persons are just, are they're so desperate for any sort of help. You know, right. so a lot of people heard this, you know, and, and would call and say, oh, well, my, my loved one went missing, you know, the last time we had contact with them was in 1981. Well, Gacy was arrested December 21st, 1978. Yeah. Right. So yes. That, that person couldn't be one of the unidentified victims. Exactly. So I could exclude that as, as a potential lead. I mean, I would still help the families, uh, you know, with their case, you know, to try to refer them. Uh, to the proper databases and, and uh, you know, police agencies and, and, and give them advice. But I mean, I, I could exclude that lead. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, the other ones, you know, we, the benefit of working, not that there's really any benefit, but a serial killer case mm-hmm. is that Gacy had so many identified victims when we reopened, you know, so he had 25 of his victims had been identified. Right. Yeah. So if you look at them, if you look at those 25 victims and kind of profile them, you start to see that Gacy was picking a certain type of victim. Mm -hmm. And we also knew because of the original murder investigation and the trial, how Gacy was acquiring victims. So when I would get these leads and I would listen to the families talk about the circumstances surrounding their loved one's disappearance, I would listen for certain things mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that that fit the case. And based on that information, I would kind of uh, classify them as like high, medium, and low. And I would start to go, you know, I started with all the high uh, level leads, you know, and this is... This is the like the the boys that we've been able to identify by reopening the case. You know, mm-hmm. young male whites. Um, you know, maybe involved in labor work because you know Gacy owned his own business. Um, it was a it was called PDM Construction. It was a, a PDM stands for painting, decorating, and maintenance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and some of his employees were his victims. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so we knew you know and he would hire young men all the time, you know, paying cash to do, um, 
this type of construction work. So if I had a young man, you know, the thing said, oh, he was looking for a job in labor, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's something. Yeah. You know, uh, Gacy was a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of his victims were gay as well. Mm-hmm. They either were uh, gay men that he was involved with or uh, some of them were gay prostitutes yeah. uh, from the north side of the city. So if the family said to me, you know, he was homosexual, you know, that that, that fits the profile. Right, yeah. that was a tip to, to um, listen to. Yeah, and then also, um, you know, Gacy would try to lure his victims into his house and into his life through drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they said, oh, you know, we kind of had a weak family bond, um, you know, the my brother or son, you know, he was kind of out and about, uh, you know, he maybe had a drug or alcohol problem. That sort of fits the profile. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now the last one that kind of blows the profile away is Gacy acquired some of his victims by posing as a policeman. Um, he had badges, police badges. He had handcuffs, a gun, and mm-hmm. he had a police car or a car that looked like a police car. Oh. It had a spotlight on the side of it. Oh my um, gosh. You know, it, it looked like an unmarked police car and he would drive along and he would uh, do a street stop and he would see a kid that he liked, stop the kid, you know, put your hands on the hood, you know, pat him down like we do today on street stops, yeah. handcuff him and uh, bring him back to his place where unfortunately they were, they were raped and murdered. Yeah. So oh, that now doesn't really help. That really could be any person. You know what I mean? That's yeah. right. That, that could uh, any of the profile. But if I hear some of the other things, those are kind of the leads that I prioritize as being higher because they fit the profile of his other identified victims. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, and him him posing as law enforcement that's terrifying because, I mean, you would you would hope that you could listen and trust and I'm, I'm sure his victims i mean maybe weren't happy in the situation if they were being cuffed but were at least thinking they were with someone that wasn't gonna do what gacy ended up doing yeah gosh absolutely yeah that's particularly heinous there's no doubt absolutely so you mentioned earlier that one of the big pieces of this is needing to get dna evidence from each of these eight um unidentified victims since all of this, you know, took place before DNA became uh, such a huge thing, how are you able to get DNA from the missing persons and hopefully match up those two DNA profiles? Well, the from researching the case, I knew that, you know, and from doing some DNA cases before, I knew that I would have to have a biological sample from the unidentified victims first. Mm-hmm. Because we were going to compare that DNA to, the, to to biological samples or DNA profiles from family members of missing persons throughout the country. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So I first had to start with obtaining a biological sample from the unidentified victims. And I learned that the mandible and maxilla bones, so that's the upper and large, lower jaw bones, mm-hmm. uh, containing teeth, were retained by the medical examiner's office back during the original murder investigation. Wow, okay. So the lower jaw, you know, these bodies were either completely skeletonized or markedly decomposed. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, 
obviously there's a process of cleaning the skeleton so they could be examined so that you know it's clean bone the, the mandible bone is, is already disconnected from the body the, the maxilla bone the upper uh, jaw bone is then re- was re- resected it was cut from the skull mm-hmm. um, containing the teeth both in the upper lower jaw those were retained for future dental comparisons that that was the idea behind retaining those the medical mm-hmm. examiner and the the, the uh, forensic, the odontology team, the forensic dentist um, said, let's just keep these bones in case someone comes forward in the future with, with some good anti-mortem dental x-rays and charts so we could do the comparisons. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I was happy they did it. They didn't, they weren't thinking DNA at the time. Mm-hmm. They, they were thinking, they were thinking dent, dental, dental uh, comparisons. Well, and um, that's but very fortunate. It, it worked. Yeah, it worked out. Here's the downside. About six months before um, the sheriff and I made the request to have the remains for DNA test, the medical examiner's office buried the bones in oh. a potter's field. Oh. And this potter's field is a place where the county's indigent, unclaimed, and unidentified are buried. And it's not well kept. It, there's no markings. Oh, uh, there, there's really no way to, it's very difficult to get back to some graves. Right. So that was discouraging, but, uh, I so, saw, but I, I, we still had to try because after the mandible and maxilla bones were removed from the unidentified victims, the bodies were buried in eight separate cemeteries all over Cook County. Oh, oh, I so did not know that. It was still easier to try to obtain the eight jaw bones than it was to do eight separate exhumations on the bodies. Right. Yeah. So we decided to try, um, went and got the court order and worked with the cemetery. And we were, it took a whole day in about three separate digs, but we were able to uh, locate the mandible and maxilla bones. Um, and, uh, that's good. That meant we could do some DNA testing. So, yeah. I took those to the lab and uh, had some DNA testing. Unfortunately, you know, it's not, and you, you guys, I'm sure know this, but, you know, the DNA testing is, is sometimes difficult. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, on historic, especially on historic cases, um, bones degrade, the DNA within the bone degrades, and I didn't get uh, good DNA profiles on all eight unidentified victims. Oh, wow. Yeah. Only four provided uh, full profile suitable for comparison. The other four didn't. Okay. So I talked to the lab. We kind of talked it out, and I they asked for more bone. Do you have more bone? I said, well, we do, but I'd have to go to the grave of the other four victims. So yeah. we did four more exhumations on the full bodies of these victims. Mm-hmm. I obtained additional skeletal material and sent that to the lab for more DNA testing. And that was as good as it was going to get. And we, we got right. some more DNA suitable for comparison. And uh, uh, it sort of worked out. Um, and that meant now that we could announce to the country mm-hmm. that we were reopening the case. And oh, that wow. if you had a missing loved one that fit the victim profile in the Gacy case to come forward and that we would collect your DNA and have a comp- directly compared to the unidentified victims of John Gacy. 
Well, and I know, I know that y'all had the forum and then the responses started flooding in and, uh, you know, the, the final part of the Deadly Legacy series or uh, special focuses on Jimmy Hackinson. And he was just determined last year, as you know, to be a Gacy victim. And what were some of those puzzle pieces that came together to be able to identify him as victim 24? Well, that was, uh, that was a, a, a very good case. We were very happy about that. Um, not to have to give the family the news that their missing brother was murdered by this evil man, but of course. That, that they came forward and, uh, they basically told me that their brother, you know, the, the first, the, actually the individual that called me originally was Jimmy Hawkinson's nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Hawkinson's nephew is the one who called me and said, I, I would like to learn if my missing uncle was one of Gacy's victims. Mm-hmm. And the part of that is that this nephew was born after Jimmy went missing. He, he never met him. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, it, he just it just bothered him that you know looking at family history that there was these he had you know aunts and uncles and one was missing yeah and, and, and he asked his mom or as he asked his dad and and his mother actually like where is this and they're like well he he went to chicago and and he's missing so it, it, it just he couldn't uh allow that yeah and it started this search for him and through talking to him and talking to his uh, mother and father and aunt. And uh, I learned that uh, when Jimmy was 16 years old, he, they all lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. And that Jimmy said to his uh, siblings that he was going to Chicago. Um, you know, it seems weird nowadays, but, you know, the 70s was a whole different thing, you know, and Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've talked about this with a few others. I mean, I was only a boy in the seventies, but the, the seventies sort of lent itself to this sort of activity. Oh, you know, you know, people traveling around and the hitchhiking and the buses and the hippie trippy lifestyle kind yeah. of almost lent itself to serial killers. And yes. <laughs> that's really evidenced by how many we had it during that time period. Which mm-hmm. still always blows my mind. When you look at all of those heavy hitters, they were all in the 70s. Yes, late 60s, 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, and the reason, the conclusion that I've come to, in my opinion, it's because the this, that era sort of lent itself to that. You know, kids were just kind of, you know, throwing their thumbs in the air and saying, hey, we're going to California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that made them vulnerable to, you know, this type of activity. Um, but that's neither here nor there with, so, but, but Jimmy was part of this. I mean, mm-hmm. Jimmy, mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, but he, and his family was like, well, you know, they, they had like not necessarily unique family dynamic, but you know, the, the, their father wasn't in the picture. You know, Jimmy's father was in the picture. Mm-hmm. His mother was working all the time. She had, uh, uh, three other children. There was four in the family, and you know, uh, they. I guess they kind of ran around like Indians a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, which is not, you know, too uncommon of a story. I mean, you see, there's oh, single, sure. you know, parent households all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he said, "I'll be back. I'll be back in a couple weeks." Oh my god! So gosh. he leaves, walks out the door. They never see him. 
uh, again. God. Now, on, this was 1976. Mm-hmm. Now, on August 5th, 1976, Jimmy calls his mom. Mm-hmm. He calls his mom and says, Ma, I'm in Chicago. He self-reports being in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And basically says, I'm going to be here for a little while, and I'll, you know, and I'll come home. She says, okay. Well, days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. And in September of 76, Jimmy's mother reports him missing to the St. Paul authorities. Yeah. Yeah. The case goes cold. You know, and and that's another thing. You know, missing and unidentified, especially missing persons investigations. In the 70s, missing person investigations were not a a huge priority. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. that's another thing that sort of lent itself to, to serial killers, you know, because a, a lot of the youth were running around, uh, you know, a lot of the yeah. youth were, were drug addicted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, law enforcement agencies, when it was, they were inundated with these sorts of things. And it just, it almost sort of takes a case like John Gacy's killings to sort of change the way law enforcement does things. Yes, absolutely. You know, it, and, and after seeing the devastation he caused, it sort of did. There were some new laws that were put, put in place and some some other protocols with missing persons. But the case goes cold. Now, December 21st, 1978, the whole country is hearing that John Gacy is arrested and that the police, my department, my predecessors, mm-hmm. are excavating his crawl space and body after body uh, are coming out of the house. Yeah. Well... Mrs. Mrs. Hawkinson saw this news too. Mm-hmm. So she calls, you know, uh, the local police, the local police calls my police department and they start this dialogue. Is it possible Jimmy's one of the victims? And well, they said, we'll send dental x-rays. You got some dental x-rays for, for missing person, Jimmy Hawkinson, mm-hmm. send them down. Well, unfortunately there wasn't any. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, the re- basically, the response was, well, without dental records, we cannot definitively say that one of these unidentified victims is indeed Jimmy Hawkinson. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And that, that's where it ends for, for, for them. Um, wow. And, and, and precisely the reason why we reopened the case, because Absolutely. now we have the DNA. Yeah. Um, so I, the story fits. The, you know, Jimmy's story fits the profile in the Gacy case. Young, white male, traveling, presumably by himself. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. You know, he's in the big city now. You know, we don't know what, you know, he was, uh, you know, even uh, some of his family members thought he might be questioning his own sexuality. Right. You know, trying to trying to learn about himself. Um, and he's vulnerable. Yeah. And so so that all fits the, fit the profile. So I said, let's do some DNA collected DNA from two of Jimmy's siblings mm-hmm. uh, and had it directly compared to the unidentified victims. And we started to see that there was a genetic association between Jimmy Hawkinson's brother and sister and victim number 24. Wow. Um, that scientific evidence, along with the case facts and circumstances, right, um, uh, meant that missing person Jimmy Hawkinson and victim number 24 were one and the same person. Wow. Yeah. This was even true up until his grave space. Victim number 24 was buried in um, Gacy's crawl mm-hmm. and in between two other victims. So there was one victim on top of him 
and one victim below him. Now, the the victim on top of him, which was victim um, number 23, Mm -hmm. was an identified victim, identified back during the original murder investigation. Um, His name was Rick Johnston. Mm -hmm. And Rick Johnston was dropped off by his mother in the area of the Aragon Ballroom, which is an area on the north side of Chicago where uh, you know, young people are, are known to hang out even to this day. Mm-hmm. On August 6, 1976, a day after Jimmy Hawkinson called his mom, August 5th, 1976. Oh my gosh. Wow. And they were buried in that way in the crawl space. Jimmy first, last spoken to his mother on August 5th. I have the missing persons report, mm-hmm. that, report that, that states that Jimmy called August 5th, 1976. Jimmy goes in the grave first, and then Rick Johnston was dropped off in the area of the Aragon Ballroom August 6th, 1976, one day after Jimmy spoke to his mother, and he's on top of Jimmy in the crawl space. And what that confirmed is, not only the timeline, but it confirmed that Gacy not only was a serial killer, but he was also a spree killer. Yes. Mm -hmm. He would kill multiple victims uh, within a day or within days of each other. Well, and that is so heartbreaking because I feel like what I also see into that is that he talked to his mom on the day that Gacy um, got him and, yeah. and lured him into his home. It, he could have been in Gacy's presence. Oh, my gosh. Making that phone call. Wow. Um, you know, because Gacy, Gacy didn't come at you. That, I mean, Gacy came at his victims as their friend. Right. Yeah. You know, like, hey, you need a place. To, oh, you're from out of town. You need a place to stay. You want to smoke some weed? You want to drink some beer? Come over to my house. I'm I'm your friend. Oh, oh well, gosh. I need to call my mom. Use my phone. Go ahead. Use my phone. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. He, he he wasn't hanging out in an alley, you know, wearing a mask. Right. Yeah. You know what? A t- so it's I don't know that, and that's one of the toughest parts. And and I spoke to the Hawkinson family about this because I always say with these types of investigation, when you provide families with uh, answers to their questions. And and the big answer was where, what happened to Jimmy Hawkins? Where is he? Yeah. Well, we, I was able to provide, you know, the sheriff and I were able to provide that answer to them. We know now what happened to Jimmy Hawkinson, um, yeah. but that answer creates more questions. Right. And now the question is, well, how did Gacy acquire Jimmy? What, what were the circumstances around that? And and unfortunately, I couldn't give the family a definitive answer. You know, yeah. I don't know exactly what happened. I know how Gacy operated. You know, I, I, we, we know that from having all of his identified victims. But I don't necessarily know exactly what happened. And, and I, you know, it, that's the tough part of these these investigations, you want to that be is. able to provide families with answers, but you're not always going to be able to provide everything. And, and and that's sort of going to be a mystery. You know, what was Jimmy in the Casey's presence when he made that call to his ma was, mm-hmm. you know, was he Rick, with Rick Johnston in the area of that Aragon ballroom? And they were both acquired on the same night. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah. you know, I, I just don't know. Yeah. And, I mean, DNA is such a crucial part of all of this. You know, the the case that comes to mind recently of a 
a serial killer and DNA being able to solve them in modern times is the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. Um, Is the idea of using those familial DNA websites um, as a as a way to I to get a bigger pool of DNA to possibly identify these victims has that come up? It has. Uh, recently, the sheriff and I started talking about that. You know, I I have a lot of lot more leads uh, to follow up on. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think I, you know because they're they're in a queue, they're in a line. You know, so many people have called over the years, and like I said, all of these. Uh, leads are, are a cold case within itself. And so they're in a line. Once I get through that line, I think that's where, then, and if we don't get all of the victims identified, mm-hmm. I think that's where we're going to go. I think we're going to, we're going to try the genealogy route and see if there's people out there that, you know, may not even really know they had a missing cousin or, you know, uncle or whatever it may be, or, yeah, um, right. And, and go that route. So yeah, that is um, it's something we've definitely considered, and something I think we'll pursue in the near future. That's great. Well, then on the, on those same lines, is there any other evidence aside from DNA that could help solve these cases, or is DNA really just the only key that we have now that it's been so long? Well, no. I mean, I could use dental records still. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if it's just that because you know the passage of time, it. it It'd be unusual that someone would have, you know, anti-mortem dental records from from their missing family member. Right. But it's possible I've had I've had it happen. Oh um, wow! Some people have called me and said my loved one went missing in you know the mid seventies, late seventies, and I have a cast a casting of their teeth uh, from their dentist that we always you know after they went missing we retained it. Oh Could wow! You use it? Yeah, absolutely. Send, you know, send, send it in or send the charts in or the x-rays, uh, you know, email them to me and I send them right over to the forensic dentist and have them do the comparison. So, I mean, I, I could still use uh, the dental um, records. It's just that because the case is so old, it's rare that, you know, most people will have, you know, 35, 40 year old dental records around. So mm-hmm. DNA is, is the primary, the primary way. Definitely. And those case facts and circumstances. Right. Um, you know, and, and really, the, and, and I thought it was, a, it was a possibility, but I didn't know how successful we were going to be. And, you know, we, we've been able to identify four other victims oh, that wow. were unrelated to Gacy. Wow. You know, boys that fit the victim profile in the case. Mm-hmm. But we learned that they were not killed by John Gacy. They were killed either by other men or died of other causes. Yeah. So, you know, this is, we've been using this DNA and in the, in the, in, through those cases, you know, you, you gotta have the case facts and circumstances in the scientific uh, way to ID these, these people. You can't, you know, DNA is, is just not magic. Right. You know, as an example, one of the kids I thought was very likely, one of the missing kids I thought was very likely to be a Gacy victim did some DNA with the parents. There was a genetic association between the parents and a skeleton that was found on top of Mount Olympus in Utah. Oh. Oh. And so obviously this, you know, I had the parents' DNA directly compared to the unidentified Gacy victims, mm-hmm. and there was no genetic association. So now those profiles go into the federal DNA database, and it ended up associating with 
a skeleton that was on top of a mountain in Utah. Wow. Well, that that's great, but now I got to learn how did this missing kid get on top of a mountain in Utah? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's not good enough just to say, "Hey, parents, there's a person that's related to you, strongly related to you, that's dead on top of a mountain." You, you, we have to learn why that happened, how it happened, if, if possible, and and thankfully in that case we were able to. I was able to do that. I. I actually even found his friend who we last spoke to and learned how he came to his fate and mm-hmm. you know, was able to go back to the family and say, you know, your missing son was not killed by this evil man. He actually died on top of a mountain doing something that he loved, which yeah. was mountain climbing. Wow. Uh, so it, it's a bang, you know, it, it, you got to have both the circumstances and the, the scientific means to, to do these old human ID cases. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the stories that you can give to these grieving families are so powerful. Well, you know, I, I've always said, I've sat down now with, um, dozens and dozens of family members of long-term missing persons. Mm-hmm. And I've always said they're, they're like the saddest people that you could ever meet. And it's because they, they live in like this cruel limbo where they don't know what to think about their missing loved one. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to think that they're dead because that's like giving up hope. Yeah, of course. Uh, but they've been gone for 35 years. And, there, and it wasn't like there was a fight or an argument or a disagreement or there was nothing. They were there one day, the next day they weren't. And so thinking that they're alive is painful because well, where, where are they? Are, are they being tortured? Are they, you know, I've had some families tell me, Oh, well, we thought our son uh, or daughter, you know, had an amnesia. Oh my gosh. You know? Yeah. Some families, they wouldn't move. Right. They, they yeah. won't move from their house because they, they think that one day Just their missing case. child oh. will come back home and they won't be there because they have, would have moved. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, any answers that family members of long-term missing persons get, I mean, it's just such a, uh, it's such a reward for them. I, uh, you could see it, you know, even the exclusions, even all the DNA samples I've been able, I've collected over the years on this case where they're not associated mm-hmm. uh, with any of the identified Gacy victims. They're not out there dead somewhere else. I haven't found them alive because we've also found five people alive in this case, five missing persons. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That were missing back in the seventies that were actually alive and out there. Um, so where are, you know, where are they? But at least I could go to the family and say, you know what? For 35, 40 years, you thought your missing son was killed by this evil man. Well, I'm here to tell you that he is not one of the unidentified victims. Yeah. So you could cross that off your list. Um, and that's, that's a win for them. I mean, when, when you're, yeah, when you're desperate for answers, that's, that's a win. Yeah. That's, that's some answer. So. Yeah. Well, and I mean, working, working and hearing from these families and hearing their just always questioning sounds just incredibly hard, but what what has been the most difficult part of trying to identify these victims and working in this 40-year-old case? 
probably the amount, just the amount of leads, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, obviously I've been in, you know, in law enforcement for 20 years. I've been a detective for a long time. I mean, tragedy is part of what, you know, we get used to, unfortunately. Right. I mean, obviously this, this, this case is really tragic if you sit back and look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what's been difficult is just the amount of leads that have come in. Yeah. Um, and getting to them, you know, and, 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 and categorizing them and, mm-hmm. you know, saying, okay, this week I'm going to try to f- work on lead number 162. And, you know, let's, let's start to see if there's any evidence or information that the missing person is alive and out there. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. try to find old records, you know, okay. You know, let, let's do some database search. You know what I mean? So you, you just, it's just the amount, you know, cause when the sheriff and I just talked about reopening the case, you know, there could only be eight, there could only be eight families mm-hmm. looking for, you know, that, that their, their loved one was killed by this man. Well, here we are a few years after we decided to reopen it and we're up to 185. Yeah. And, and that's really been the the hardest part is, yeah. is just the, I, we didn't know what to expect because the missing persons category of NCIC, which is the, the police computer, you know, uh, didn't start till 1975. And a, a lot of agencies didn't start using it right away. Mm-hmm. You know, cause police were sometimes were slow to jump on the newest thing. You know, we wait and see. So we didn't really, we, there was really no way of knowing how many people really went missing in the 70s. Um, and and that, so that's really been the challenge. The challenge in, is just getting to each lead and doing the best, the best I can with each one. Yeah. 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 Well, um, Jason, thank you so, so much for, for your time. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight or let our listeners know? Well, I mean, one of the main messages is if someone has a missing loved one in their life that fits the victim profile in the Gacy case, um, to, to contact me, uh, to contact my office and, and submit your lead information so I could put it in the line and eventually get to it. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll identify some more, some more victims. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to us on this. This has been, this has been incredible. Yes. And also, you know, thank you for all of the work that you're doing um, there in Chicago for these families and for families all around the country. Um, It's, I know it's definitely a lot of a workload, but it's exciting to hear that you've been able to solve, um, cases that were unrelated to Gacy as well as finding some of these missing missing persons alive. So thank you so much for all of that. To bring closure to so many people. That's just, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's, it's been my privilege. I, um, very happy the cases that have been successful. I'm very happy, very happy for the families that, um, it's really, you know, a lot of these families have given up hope. Mm -hmm. So to bring them this news, even though it's bad, you know, and we, we talked about that too. Are we doing more, we, more harm than good? You know, by by reopening this case, mm-hmm. are in overwhelmingly, it's been positive. Even having yeah. to deliver the news yes. to the Bundy family and the Hawkinson family to say that I'm sorry to report that your loved one was murdered by this evil man. 
that answer is overwhelmingly positive. So, um, for for those families, in other words, the not knowing is the worst part. Absolutely. So it's been, it's been our privilege to, to help where we could. Well, thank you so much. Um, I guess we can, we can go ahead and let you go. All right. Sounds good. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Okay. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Bye. Bye. All right, so we just finished up with our interview with Detective Sergeant Jason Moran. And wow. Yeah. I have never the the whole the whole John Wayne Gacy case has never felt so real. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Because yes, I've always known it's real. Yes, I've always known how horrifying it is, but talking with someone who is working through this case to identify these unsolved yeah. victims and who is so intimately close to all of the details. Yeah. It was, was kind of skin, skin chilling, yeah. made my skin crawl, whatever the phrase is that I can't come up with. Bone chilling. It, was, it was bone chilling, yeah, skin yeah. crawling. Yeah. Scary. Well, even, even when I was researching for episode 28, it's one thing to research and read about what he did and, see the names of these people it's another thing to hear someone talk about talking to those families and having that relationship and just I don't know having that intimate connection and someone who's so passionate about giving these families as much closure as he can absolutely you know like he was saying, it's they're happy even when they hear the horrible things, or they hear things like, you know, he wasn't a victim, but we we don't know where your son is. The, right. They're happy because they get some kind of answer, and it's closure. Yeah. It for forty years there has been mm-hmm. no resemblance of closure for these people, and so it's this combination of relief but also horror of knowing yeah. what their loved one went through and that that they were in fact a gacy victim yeah. and you know or or you know like you were saying that it was a different missing persons case or that they were found alive mm-hmm. like that he did you know and that's one thing that i think is so amazing is that this whole reopening of the john wayne gacy investigation to identify these victims has solved other cold cases opened other cold cases that were not open Mm -hmm. and also you know found some people who were still living and that's just all so very positive and i mean like detective mara was saying uh, very overwhelming yeah it was like this can of worms that just keeps keeps going. Absolutely. And, and and in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know a positive can of worm phrase. But, uh, but it's like a... It kind of is a can of worms because this is not fun things. But it's yeah. it's very positive to be able to take steps forward. Well, and to have that impact too. I just... I still can't get over how many lives are being touched. And how many people are finally after... 40 years getting answers. Yeah. Well, and if you do happen to know anyone, uh, we do have the contact information so you can Mm. reach out to Detective Moran. Um, There's the form that we talked about that all the leads were coming in from. The website you want to visit for that is cookcountysheriff.org. 
slash unidentified dash victims dash John dash Wayne dash Gacy. So um, again, cookcountysheriff.org forward slash unidentified dash victims dash John dash Wayne dash Gacy. And the phone number, if you want to call and leave a tip, it is 708-865-6244. And yeah, so um, reach out if you if you have some information mm-hmm. that could be helpful in solving these these cases. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are so many young men and boys who went missing in the Chicago area or went to Chicago in '78 yeah. and earlier. And it, you know, there are so many families out there who, well, there's six families out there. Who have children or siblings or uncles that were Gacy victims. And they don't know it yet. Yeah. So they want answers. But um, huge, huge thank you again to Detective Sergeant Moran for for being a part of this episode and for talking to us. And it was a truly, truly fascinating and eye-opening interview. Oh, yeah. Um, So... Well, make sure and go to Investigation Discovery's uh, different social channels and mm-hmm. follow them. Y'all, their programming is phenomenal. So um, good. We've been so fortunate to be involved with Cold Valley and Deadly Legacy, but all of their shows are so good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really... I mean, there's a reason they're the number one true crime network. Because oh, they yeah. have amazingly produced things, amazing stories and shows. Um, so be sure to follow them on social, and while you're at it, follow us too. <laughs> yeah, uh, like and follow us. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Also check out our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Make sure to follow us on all the your favorite podcast platforms. Yeah, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and um, make sure to leave us a review. Yeah. Let us know um, what you loved about the episode. Give us those five stars. And, um, yeah. So that's basically it. Yeah. So hope you all enjoyed this. We absolutely did. We absolutely did. I Because we love doing these interviews. I think it's so great to have, a, I don't know, a different perspective. Absolutely. We can do all the research we want on these cases and dive deep into them, but... When you speak with someone who's intimately involved with them, who has that training and knowledge and instinct that goes with being in this field for all these years and who's actually solved these cases and brought justice to these families, it's very humbling and just, it's such a great experience. It is. So, um, thank y'all for listening. Let us know what you think. And XOXO. Blood and Wine signing off. Bye. Bye.